Just play the music at the best of your ability and enjoy it. And if someone sits in front of you or someone shines a little bit more than you the next day, let them because they need to. And sometimes you just have to move over for people in music. Music isn't about being the best. It's about presenting your best. Hi, I'm Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists looking for in-depth, career-accelerating conversation about all that's neat for clarinet. On today's show, I'm joined by Wesley Hodges, who has a multifaceted career as a clarinetist, educator, church pianist, and music director. We discuss his experience finding music as his passion, why taking a salary job in music might be the right choice for you, why sometimes you have to put yourself first, even if it means putting your career on hold, why the word no is important, many teaching tips, and much, much more. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors and supporters for making today's program possible, and you for taking the time to listen to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe to Clarinet wherever you get your podcasts, tell your musical friends, students, and colleagues all about it, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Remember, if you want to help support the production of the podcast, you can do this at clarinet.com slash join. As a thank you for your support, you'll get access to an ad-free extended version of episodes just like this one today. You can do this again at clarinet.com slash join and get your first 30 days free trial with code TRIGOLD at checkout. That's code TRIGOLD at checkout at clarinet.com slash join. As musicians, we're always looking to improve our playing and understanding of music, but we are often hesitant to work on the business and marketing side. If you're looking to make more money teaching, fill up the gaps in your schedule and find ideal clients to work with who leave you energized instead of drained after a day of teaching, you need to check out clarinetist Kelly Reardon's Outside the Box community. Get a free 30-minute consultation and personalized recommendations from Kelly by mentioning Clarinet when you register at kellyreardon.com. That's K-E-L-L-Y-R-I-O-R-D-A-N.com. Also, you might want to check out her recent podcast episode with me, number 174 of the Clarinet podcast. The new Bakun Q-Series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at BakunMusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé Clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at BakunMusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. I'm here in the podcast today with Wesley Hodges, who is coming to us from Chicago, Illinois. He's the director of music ministries at St. Mark's Episcopal Church, and he plays clarinet, organ, piano, and even voice. And so we're here to talk to him today about what it's like having a career in a church situation like that, but also accompanying a uh, collaborative piano, I guess. I'm not sure what we're, what we're going to call it here today or what you're comfortable with, but um, that whole sort of, this is a realm to me which is so interesting and such an interesting career. So Wesley, let's get started. If you could introduce a little bit about yourself for those who don't, don't know who you are, and then we'll dive into your fascinating career here. Yeah, it is a fascinating career. Um, I'm 38. I'm from New Orleans originally, and I found my way up to Chicago, Illinois through lots of church jobs um, going um, from Mississippi to Atlanta to Peoria, Illinois to Chicago, and here I am. But it is an interesting career. I love it very much, but I do so much. Um, But a pianist is what I am. I've been a pianist since I was a child. That's usually where most of my work falls around is um, sitting in front of a piano. So how did you get into this sort of, uh, you know, playing organ, piano, clarinet, voice? I mean, what was your start as a musician like? When I was a kid, we would go to church and the pianist would play every Sunday. And she was a very loving person, but very simple piano player. And she would accompany the hymns with her left hand doing something like an octave and chord accompaniment. And I would go home as like six, seven years old and sit at the table and just try to mimic what she was doing with her hands, even though I didn't have a piano. And I think my parents saw that and asked me if I wanted to play the piano and they got me piano lessons. Um, So my mom went and got a, um, she found the classifieds in New Orleans and the Times-Picayune newspaper and went and got a huge upright piano for $250 and I started piano lessons. And very quickly, I was playing in church every Sunday. I played the same thing every Sunday for about six months. I played Oh, How I Love Jesus um, with the melody in the right hand and just simple one, four, five chords in the right hand. But I think 
you know, that was always something that I've done. I, I don't remember a time that I didn't make music. And I've, I've always made music because even before piano lessons, I sang in church with my parents. So it's always been music at the forefront. My dad is a great vocalist and has already surrounded me with music. So that's how I got into piano. But then it, it, you fast forward a little bit and I get to middle school and I'm in seventh grade and they put me in gym class and I wanted to play in band so bad but my mom wouldn't let me. She said <laughs> that we're already investing in piano lessons and we can't afford an instrument and we can't afford you to play another instrument. I come from a, a very low income home um, in New Orleans. And I really relate it to um, Doreen, the clarinet queen story um, from New Orleans as well, when she was talking about that middle school band program and how it was in New Orleans. I went to a very similar inner city school that had a very similar band program. And I was walking from PE class one day and I just looked into the band, the band hall and the teacher was standing there and she said, what are, what are you doing? And I said, I really wanna play the music with y'all but my mom won't let me. Um, and she told me to go change my schedule that I could play the music. Um, she said I could play piano in the band. So I went and changed my schedule and quickly realized that playing piano in the band meant sitting in a room, um, not with the band, playing the piano, and she would come check on me every once in a while to see if I was practicing. And I just, I would, I would, I didn't practice in the room. I would just sit and watch everybody play the music. And one day she came in and she said, do you want to try to play the clarinet? And I said, I would love to do that. And she said, someone just quit and I have an extra clarinet. And the end of the story is I went home the whole weekend and played the clarinet and came back and sat down and it was like I had been there the whole semester. Um, I figured it out really quickly and three months later made first chair honor band for the um, beginner band and it just, it, the clarinet was just my DNA. It was just part of who I was. That's so interesting and it actually reminds me of when I first started music too and it, it makes me think that sometimes the people who, I don't know if you're like meant to do it or if it's just that drive or like severe interest in whatever you're doing, but like I teach a lot of starter workshops and there's kids who even by like six months, a year, two years, they don't really have that much figured out. But I remember when I first got my clarinet too, I went home and I played like four hours that night. I figured out all the low notes. I figured out all the, <laughs> as much as I could. I started trying to read music and, and that weekend and, and the weekends, many, many weekends after even, it got to the point where my neighbors were calling my mom like, hey, could you just ask him to stop practicing at least like 1030 p.m. or shut the window or something? And it was just hours and hours of playing. Um, so do you think that this kind of you said it's in your DNA and I can hear the reverence for music in general in your voice. How do you think that happens? Like that people are just born with some sort of thing in their soul they have to do or inspiration from your father or. Yeah, I think. A lot of times people confuse skill and talent and they're like, this person is a talented person. They're just a natural musician. And I do believe that some people just naturally gravitate to music, music, just like people gravitate to math or language or any other um, skill. And I think for me, music comes really simple. It doesn't mean that I don't work hard and I don't practice and I don't try to be a better musician every day of my life because I do those things. But I think for me, if I, if I wanna try something, maybe a different style of music, I just do it and I listen and I do it and I, I, I can imitate things really well and I can adapt really well, but music never was hard for me. It was the first time I, I had a lot of problems in school with um, like core classes and like I'm dyslexic and you know doing like the math classes and the English, those were always hard. Music was never hard for me. Music was something that I was always the best at, I excelled at, and I felt like if there were honor classes for music, I would have been in those classes. Um, but I never would have been in the honor classes for um, the academic stuff. But you know, music is just something that I breathe. It just, um, I can't imagine my life without it. And I love it very much, but it's always been there. And, you know, it's so funny because I hear music everywhere. Um, there's a bird around here that um, whistles a B flat to an A, B flat to an A flat. Every single day I hear this, they go. 
and, and I'm just listening to it and I'm like, it's literally everywhere I go. Um, I can't escape it, but I love it. So that's such an interesting way of looking at it. I think uh, Olivier Messiaen was much like that too. He heard music and everything, especially birds. Um, and even John Cage, I think he said something once like, I've never heard a sound I didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he would write, you know, some pretty weird stuff and even nothing and call it music. So music is very subjective, I suppose. And if you're able to hear music everywhere, man, that's a great, almost a great quote. Not everyone is the same. Not everyone learns the same. But with your experience with dyslexia, like how has this shaped your, you know, I don't want to say ability to learn and read music, but I don't know what that's like. Would you be willing to go into that a little bit? And yeah, of course. is it affected by music at all? Or is music somehow excluded from, from that condition? Is it just written word? Like I'm, I'm just not familiar with it. Yeah, I think for me, I learned that I was dyslexic in college um, and it always was a struggle, but it was a huge light bulb for me because it allowed me to know that these things were not something wrong with me, that like it was, I wasn't not getting this because I was dumb. I wasn't getting this because I was seeing it differently and I had to learn how to see things differently. But great, the great news is I've never been affected with it with music like music has never i've never for me with my dyslexia it's reading and writing that are the hardest things for me i've always struggled with writing words down and jumbling letters um i i really am a horrible speller um i've gotten better throughout the years but reading um numbers anytime i'm on the phone with someone and they say write this number down I literally will point to each number and say it out loud just to make sure that I'm saying it because always I call the number that they tell me and I have flipped two numbers. It always happens. And I've gotten really good about, hold on one second, I'm dyslexic. Let me just make sure I got these numbers right and I say it. But for me, for music, it never was a problem. I always excelled um, in music. In college, I you know, I made straight A's in, in all my music classes. I never really struggled with the music, but I did struggle with the academic side of music. So when it came to music history and music literature and the classes that I actually had to read that basically is a history class, um, I struggled with those um, because it was just like a core class, but just about music. But when it came to theory and form and analysis and those things, it, I, I don't even think about it. So... It, it just just comes out of me. Well, I think that's one nice thing about the education system nowadays anyway, is uh, we really seem to be enabling people with different learning styles or types or, or things like that. It's, and it's always interesting to me too that like it was ever thought differently in the past because like how could you not realize as an educator that people are different and they don't all fit into one mold, <laughs> you know, like that's one of the biggest things that I kind of realize as a teacher is like, well, wait, what is this person's intuition towards this? What, what level, what's something they might be missing or what, what's the way they might be looking at this differently? And I had one student one time when I was a younger teacher, so I didn't quite know as much about, you know, how to diagnose the things that were happening, but I was explaining to him how to tongue and it just never, ever worked at all. And I kept showing him like with my tongue and saying the T or whatever syllable you want to use for that tonguing. But I didn't realize that he was the way he spoke. I think he had some kind of speech impediment, but he kind of like anchored his tongue in the back of his mouth and tried to use. It wasn't working at all. But to him to say those syllables because of his speech impediment didn't make any sense. Cause, so I had to like literally describe, okay, the tongue is going to look like this. And we drew a tongue and, and showed it in his mouth. And, and then finally, after you know, quite some time, it clicked for him. But I was like, I'm, I'm so glad that I was willing to dive into this and not just keep reading it off the textbook or whatever, that this is how it must be done. And you'll do it this way or you'll just never do it. Yeah, it sounds like you're an amazing teacher because so often teachers have their cookie cutter way of teaching and they force the student to do that, but it sounds like you hit a dead end and you found a, an alternate route to explain it to a kid. And I think that is what makes a really good teacher, especially when we're teaching private lessons. When we're with a student in a private setting, that lesson is for them 100%. And we have to do everything in our power to explain it. And sometimes the way I explain things don't work for certain kids. And I have to figure, you know, figure out a different route. And it sounds like um, that's something you do as well. So kudos. And I hear that creativity in teaching, um, even with you, the way you sort of treat yourself, as far as the numbers there you're talking about, you know, I'll say it out loud and do this. That's a system. That's a workaround. That's a, a smart thing to do. Not many people give themselves that 
credit or they don't treat themselves the same way they would treat their students, which is kind of weird. And, um, you know, even I have to remind myself of that sometimes, like I was trying to transcribe this piece the other day and I was like really getting frustrated or whatever. And I was just like, you know what, why don't I just take a step back and, and sort of slow down and, and realize that this is obviously difficult or I wouldn't be having a problem with it. And if I was one of my students, what would I say to myself about this? You know, I, I wouldn't just throw in the towel and, and whatever, you know, you got to have that sort of exploratory sense to it. So, so you do a lot of education. Um, you're doing with the church, um, many, many activities, playing and singing and, and playing clarinet. And so what is the average week or day, or is there such a thing? What does it look like? And to, just before you answer to the listeners, this is a show where I like to talk about, you know, clarinet, neat things for clarinet. And, and I think this is actually quite neat in the sense of like, I've explored a lot of different career options on this show. Like we talked about, you know, everything from Doreen Ketchens, who's like, you know, jazz superstar in the streets, playing to the public, you know, all the way to orchestral careers and, you know, military jobs and everything in between. But this is the first time in like close to 200 episodes we've had this particular job type on here. And you have to recognize there's so many different career paths within music. And that's why the show doesn't focus on just orchestra, because I personally think there's so much more and, and many people will do many other things. So, so uh, this is, if you're listening and you're in college or something, this is a, a viable career path and something that might be of interest to you. So perk up those ears. <laughs> yeah. Um, I feel great, like very grateful that I have the career that I have. Um, and there are lots of options um, for people to have a career as a church musician. I've had a career in the Episcopal Church for um, 16 years. It's great to have a salary position um, and not depend on gig work every day. But um, I know a lot of people are successful with gig work, and I still do a lot of gig work. But um, my Google Calendar is my life. Um, without my calendar, I wouldn't know what to do because I'm the type of person that I schedule every minute of my day. Um, I try to make time in between things for like bathroom breaks and stuff like that. But I literally, you know, I, I, on Mondays, I might have like four and a half hours of church work and then four hours of teaching. Um, and it's all back to back stuff. And my church hours, I might say, you know, for 45 minutes at this time, I'm going to go practice the organ. At 30 minutes, I'm going to practice this. Um, I have a meeting with this person at this time. I'm going to be planning music for six weeks ahead of time at this time. But I literally strategically go into my calendar and put blocks of time for everything. I know what I have to get accomplished in my job, and I have a short amount of time to do it. So, each day is different. It really just depends um, on what day it is and, and where I am. But I'm very fortunate that one of my benefits of being at this beautiful church, and if you could see it, it looks like it should be on the set of Harry Potter. It was built in 19, um, I mean 1891, and it is this beautiful stone church. Um, and I have, you can see the um, choir library behind me. It looks like the wand boxes in Harry Potter. Um, so it's just a really cool place. But one of the benefits that I get of being the director of music here is this is also my teaching studio. And so my students get to teach, um, my students get to learn in the choir room, which is this huge room with amazing impeccable acoustics. So a lot of my students, when they have their lesson, they're like, it sounds so cool in here. And it's like, to be able to learn in a space that sounds like a performance hall is like this huge gift. And the bigger gift is being able to teach in that space. So I'm grateful for that. That's amazing. And I love what you said to a moment ago, you said something about the salaried position has really kind of opened up your life for you. And, and uh, it, it's too bad, because a lot of musicians feel this sort of urge to live this sort of pained, you know, life of anguish, like Beethoven or whatever, and <laughs> sort of, sort of, they, they view getting a salary job almost as selling out. And I hate that mentality, because don't knock it till you've tried it. <laughs> you know, because I when I first started freelancing, I freelanced for a long time, and I did enjoy it. But I wanted to be a yes man and be able to say yes to everything that came up. And there's a certain value to that. But doing full-time work or, you know, any kind of salaried or more regular work gave me this amazing word in my vocabulary. And that word is no. <laughs> so what I find works better for me is, is to say yes to only the things that I actually want to do. And then they're more fulfilling for me. Um, and because my job is something that I want to do things, everything is what I want to do. And it's so much better than like, oh, you know, I would go to that school, but I don't like the band teacher and they don't really like me or whatever. And that happened actually just, just this morning. I got a 
I got a call to do some some clinic at a school, but I don't really like that teacher and their philosophies. And quite honestly, I don't think they like me very much. So I just said no. <laughs> and it was no stress on my back. I don't care at all. And that's just so no is such a nice word as well as yes, sometimes. <laughs> I love the word no. Um, I used to also be a yes, everything um, because I needed it. Stability is something that um, I'm grateful for. But I tell my fiance all the time, like a job will come up and I'll say, you know, I really don't have time for this, but this would feed me. This would give me joy and this would make me feel good. So I'm going to make time for this job because I want to do it. But I love saying, you know, I really don't have time for that in my schedule right now. Thanks for thinking of me and ask me again. That's the important part at the end, by the way. If you want yes. to be asked again, you should say thank you and, you know, please do think of me again. Because if you just shut it down, it can end badly. But you're right. It's it's so valuable to be able to say no when you want to. But are you familiar with the triangle system I've talked about before on the podcast about how to make decisions? I don't recall. So basically, for those listening to, I can't remember what episode this was. It's so long ago now. But I encountered some guest who told me this triangle system and I use it every day now. Um, and I turned it to a square when I had a family, but basically there's three corners in the triangle. One is, will the gig pay? One is, will I enjoy it? And the third one is, will it fulfill my musical needs or wishes or whatever, right? So, and in a way I tell, you know, students or those looking to freelance, like you got to start by filling one corner, but then look for two corner jobs and then eventually look for three corner jobs. And if you have kids or a family or whatever, you want to add in a fourth corner, maybe horse riding is important to you. Like, will it let me ride my, whatever, you know, for me, it was like, I want to spend time with my kids. So will it fulfill the four corners of my, my thing? And, uh, that resulted in me taking some time off of music. Cause I was like, that fourth corner is not getting filled enough. So evenings and weekends, I want to be home. But anyway, so, um, this I find really helps because at first you're right. It's about need. Will it pay? Can I eat? <laughs> you know, but then will I enjoy this? Will it bring me personal positivity and then the musical fulfillment and advancement is important too. the career part I guess yeah no that sounds great I, I think I do something very similar I don't shape it as a triangle but <laughs> uh, it's pretty much the same mentality because um, early in my career you know to back up a little bit I dropped out of school my senior year of college so in uh, so that was 2005 I walked away from my clarinet's performance degree with the esteemed Dr. Andrea Cheeseman at Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi. And um, it was probably the hardest decision I've ever made. And it, I went to school at Delta State as a clarinet performance uh, major because they were giving me a full scholarship. And I probably should have been a piano, uh, a piano major in, when I went to um, college. But I was on a full ride for clarinet, and that's who was paying me, so that's what I should be studying. Um, when I made my senior year, I made All-State Band. I made the top of All-State Band, and all the colleges um, pursued me and sent me money. And, you know, being from a family that was not going to support me in college, they had no money to support me, and being a first-generation college graduate, someone that is the first person in their whole family tree to to even go to college. It was really important for me to go to college, but I went to a school in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi and the bullying that I underwent for being a queer person and not being out yet, I was still developing who I was and it was so intense that I just could not take it anymore. And I for my health and for my safety, I had to walk away from my degree. And that haunted me for all of my 20s. But when I walked away, I knew I had to work. And I was already working in churches. I was already accompanying. I was already, I was the accompanist for the choir at, at the university. I was already working as a pianist. And I just applied as for a director of music jobs in churches. And I put myself in that career. And I have I feel like I have succeeded. I have had this amazing career without a bachelor's of music. And it has been so difficult. I've had to fight for everything I've had. But saying yes at the beginning is why I can say no now. You know, at the very beginning, someone could say, could you do this? Yes. 
Um, when I was in Atlanta and the Ritz Carlton asked me to be the pianist, I said yes. And now forever and ever, I can say that I was the pianist for the Ritz Carlton in Atlanta, Georgia for three years. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, it's impressive. It sounds great. Um, all I did was play cocktail piano and a little jazz and blues, and it was fun. But it's, you know, to people, it's like, oh, wow, you played for the Ritz. You must be great. Yeah, thanks. Um, but I've had to fight for those things. And my interest in clarinet never went away. You know, when I got when I dropped out of school, I still played clarinet. I still played in orchestras. I still would sub and I would still play. But um, my career has been as a pianist and an organist. But then COVID hit, the pandemic hit. And, you know, my partner and I are living in this 700 square foot apartment in Chicago and here I am having to be a professional musician recording everything I'm doing inside of this tiny apartment. We're getting noise complaints from our neighbors and the apartments telling me that I'm being too loud. And I'm like, but I have to do my job. And it was really stressful. But I think one of the hardest things for me as a clarinetist was when I walked away from school in 20, 2005, I didn't tell anyone. I just walked away. Um, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. And I wish that I would have told Dr. Cheeseman because Dr. Cheeseman was amazing to me. I was the principal clarinetist of the university. And Dr. Cheeseman just, I mean, she just rolled out the carpet for me. And she was such an amazing um, instructor. And so, during COVID, I decided to reach out to Dr. Cheeseman for the first time since I walked away. And I wrote her a very long message and I started with, I'm sorry. And she wrote me back almost immediately and just was like, look, I support you. I understand. I completely get it. So I started taking lessons from her again um, over Zoom um, during the pandemic. Gosh, that first lesson with her it was like revisiting all those emotions of being at that university and being told you're not good enough or being told that you're gay or you're queer and you're never going to amount to anything. All these emotions came forward. But I'm so grateful for that opportunity to say, Dr. Cheeseman, I'm sorry. I wish I would have called you. I wish I would have explained everything to you. And she was so kind. And I I've taken lessons from her for another year now. And I've learned so much from her in this amount of time. And it's, it was just, it was a different experience because she got to meet me for who I really am. And, um, and we got to experience each other in a different way than we did in 20, you know, 2005. I keep wanting to say 25, but 2005. So it would be totally okay to, of course, never go back to the degree. Um, I know many people who kind of decided to leave their musical education behind and, and move to something else. But did you go back and, and finish? Because you have so many other musical experiences. It just, it seems to me that your education did continue. Yeah, you know, 100% my education continued outside of college and institutional learning. Um, I constantly in my 20s were, were taking lessons from professionals and challenging myself to grow and taking master classes and doing everything I could to grow as a musician. Um, but all through my 20s, it haunted me. I was so close to my degree when I walked away. I was just hours away from my clarinet performance degree. And it it just, it ate at me. Every time I had to write that I don't have a degree on something, I would just cringe um, because I was worthy of the job and I'm capable of doing it, but I didn't have that diploma. And so when I was 30, I went back to school and it was one of the best things that I did for me. But like you said, if it's not in your cards, if it's going to give you too much stress to go back to school, it's okay. You can still work and you can still be successful without a degree. Most most composers and musicians that came before us did it, so why can't you do it? But I did it. I went back to school. I went to a junior college before I went to Delta State University. So the first thing I did was complete three classes to get my associates of music. Um, so I finished my associates of music in music education, associate of art of music education. That is the degree that I have. And then came the time to finish my bachelor. And the only way I could finish my degree was to go back to Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi, which was not gonna happen. For me to go to any institute to finish a clarinet performance degree, I would have had to almost start over. 
So I did finish my bachelor's with a um, liberal studies degree and a minor in women and gender studies, because that is something that I use in my everyday job as a church musician. I'm constantly rewriting hymns to make sure that all are included and that women have a place in the text and LGBTQIA plus community people have places. So that degree has really helped me um, in my work as a church musician. It's interesting in the sense of like how your life sort of has like almost story arcs that are connecting back like a like a movie or something. You know what I mean? Like that's a really profound kind of uh, thing to have happened to go back and, and be able to work with your teacher. And uh, and it's interesting in a way, because I was going to ask you how COVID has affected being a church musician and teaching and things, because I know that a lot of this stuff did go online, but it's interesting how even though there was a lot of disconnection and isolation and it's all been horrible in so many ways, but like it has led to new connections for a lot of people or new experiences or, or choosing to distance yourself from persons who maybe aren't that valuable to you. I mean, I can think of someone specifically in my life who I've been trying to work on bass guitar and guitar for many years, and I'm not a fantastic one of either, but hey, to write pop songs, you don't really need to be, let's be honest, <laughs> right? So anyway, I'd been just trying to learn bass and posted something on my Instagram and this guy who I know who is a professional musician in town was like, oh, nobody will pay for that. And I was just like, you know what? So over the pandemic, I've just been practicing. I started taking lessons and doing all this stuff again. And I was like, it's, it's felt so good to just not think about these people anymore, <laughs> you know? And, and next time I see them too, I don't have to, I don't feel this obligation to connect with them because evidently they don't really care. And so it's so freeing to just like focus on what makes you, you and spend your time doing the things that you like to do and not worrying about the people who who talked stuff about you in the past or, or whatever, because everyone's everyone's got those people. And, you know, I have this one quote that I love. It says, you think less about what people thought about you if you realized how seldom they do. And that is so true, because a lot of people just, you know, you don't call them or don't see them or whatever. You'll never hear from them again. And maybe that's OK. You know, that's sound advice. Um, you know, we spend our whole life thinking about oh, this person is doing this to me and we dwell, dwell, dwell. They're gone. They're on their day. They're, they have left that situation. They haven't given it another thought. And, you know, I just, my junior year of college, I went to the Oklahoma Clarinet Symposium. And it was the first time that I was around open queer people. And there were so many amazing clarinetists there that were just open and queer and in a safe place. And it, it was really, really exciting to see that. And time has changed. Um, people are a lot more out and um, open. But when I went to school, it was not okay to, to say that you were gay out loud. Um, the, the bullying and the, the consequences behind that were just really severe. But I also come from a family. My dad is a military person. And my dad's very competitive. And the clarinets, the clarinet section is always a very competitive section. There's always a lot of clarinets and everyone wants to sit in that first chair seat. And I think for me, I let that get the best of me in high school and college um, because I always sat in the first chair seat, but I lost friends over it um, because I would get so, so worked up about it. Like when I did Allstate Band my senior year, we had to audition twice. We had to do our first audition and then two weeks later, the second rounds. And I practiced so hard in between the, the callback that literally my tongue was bleeding um, because I was practicing. So I was playing Weber's second concerto. Um, and I mean that the really, really 16 note fast part. I mean, I was killing my tongue practicing two or three hours a day because I just wanted that first chair seat. And if I could go back and, and experience it all over again, and if you're out there and you're in college and you're playing clarinet and you're working on this, just worry about yourself. Just play the music at the best of your ability and enjoy it. And if someone sits in front of you or someone shines a little bit more than you the next day, let them because they need to. And sometimes you just have to move over for people in music. Music isn't about being the best. It's about presenting your best. I love that. And you know, it's, it's so true too, that like, 
you mentioned the different stages of your life, like when you were younger. There's just such truth too that, you know, especially for those listening, I, I don't really never know who the exact audience is. There's a lot of clarinetists out there. And I think people, if they're interested in the episodes, they stick around. I guess if they're not, they're not here. But I think that if you're listening to this and you're in your 20s or something, you got to realize that like, as you get older, I don't know what it is, but you just stop caring what other people think as much, <laughs> you know? And uh, I wish that I realized that would happen when I was younger. I just, you didn't know, like you didn't know there'd, there'd come a day where like, you're just more comfortable doing whatever you do simply because you just don't care. <laughs> I, I had someone joke to me one time that, you know, in your 20s, you worry about what everyone thinks about you. In your 30s, you just worry about yourself. And in your 40s, you don't worry about anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you're just, your life kind of just goes on and, and uh, you know, you, you're able to just focus on what really matters to you. And, and that's the nice thing, I guess, about getting older is that you your career and your, your life and you can shape it how you want and surround yourself with the people who hopefully you want. Yeah. And I think for me, like, you know, when I left college, I kept performing um, every year I would do a recital at the church that I was working at. And I would, I've, I've learned a major piece every year of my life. So right before COVID um, I read, I redid the um, Mozart clarinet concerto and coupled it with um, Finzi's five bag of tails. Cause I just love that six flags amusement park final movement of the bag of tails. Is that the one that's like, sorry. Yeah. I think it, it's like Disney World. I love that me. piece. I don't know why. I, I play it a lot and uh, everyone's like, oh, why are you always playing that? I'm like, I don't know. I like it. It's catchy. <laughs> it is. It's raunchy fun and I love it very much. But Finzi is a choral writer and those inner movements have such solid melodies for the clarinet that I just think it's a piece that people should um, probably play more of because it's so beautiful. Um, but that final movement is just so much fun and it's just... Um, it's kind of like party poppers. It's very lively. Um, yeah, it's a nice. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just I love those trills and it's so much fun. Um, but I'm always challenging myself to work, 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 and play. But in church, I really don't play the clarinet. I didn't play the clarinet very often because I couldn't figure out how to to present the clarinet for preludes and postludes without an accompanist because I'm I was so grounded to always having an accompanist and. Unfortunately, I haven't figured that skill out yet. And so Dr. Cheeseman in our lessons, she was like, why don't you play etudes more often? She was like, there's so many great etudes that you could play for preludes and postludes that people would just love. And that permission slip to play etudes as solo work has been probably the greatest thing. I have probably played every rosé etude in church. Um, I just, you know, opened that 32 etude book and started at C and I've just worked my way through them. And they're such great performance pieces that, um, especially if you're in great acoustics, you don't need anything else. And so I've really enjoyed doing that. And now I play the clarinet for prelude and postlude at least once a month um, at church. Um, and it allows me, you know, that opportunity to play. But um, when I started lessons back, she gave me um, Osborne's Rhapsody, you know, the, the bassoon etude that uh, a lot of clarinetists play. And she said, I want to work with you on this. Um, it's unaccompanied. It's super, super fun to play. And it was one of the hardest things I've done in a long time because, you know, my technique isn't what it used to be, but I worked really hard on it. I worked every section. And finally, it came to that Zoom lesson with Dr. Cheeseman when I said, um, all right, I'm ready to play the whole piece for you. She put herself on mute and I just performed the hell out of that piece and played it from top to bottom, no mistakes. And as soon as I put my instrument down, it was just like floods of tears and emotions because it was like this validation for me of something I couldn't have in you know, 2005 when I was with her the first time that I actually succeeded in front of my teacher because when we're taking lessons from someone, what we want more than anything is to show our teacher that we've learned what they've given us and that we have, that we can do it and we wanna perform for them and we wanna show them. But performance anxiety for our teachers is a real thing. As soon as the student gets in front of the teacher, it like everything starts falling apart. And um, it was a beautiful moment for me. That's such an insightful realization. I remember when I realized that, 
that completely changed my teaching style because I used to be the type of teacher who felt obligated sometimes by the parents or the teachers that I was working with at their schools to be fair, but I sometimes felt obligated to fill every minute with instruction and to, you see these great players too, always cutting people off. Oh no, 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 stop, 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 stop. They're always stopping everything, right? But I realized when I was taking some, I think it was piano lessons just for fun after I'd been teaching a few years, I realized that it was important for me to show the teacher what I had done the previous week, whether or not it was perfect, just to show that I had what I was working on, you know, and it was important for me that they listened to that. And uh, I never really expressed that to that teacher, but they I noticed they did always give me the chance to play what I worked on at the beginning of the lesson without stopping me. So now when I go to schools and things too, like I used to work with a piece or something and I used to just constantly cut it off trying, okay, let's refine that bar. I hear problems there. Of course I can hear problems. I'm a professional musician, right? But I should also give them the chance to just express themselves and show me what they've done and can do before diving into that. So now I always, I spend a lot of time in lessons or in, in workshops, like letting them play to get that sort of sense of, I showed the teacher, I, I passed this along, I'm, I'm capable of, and it's an important performance experience, I think, too. So but that's such a nice thing that you're able to almost like wrap up your recital for your teacher I guess 17 years later, in a way. That's solid advice for teachers. Um, whether you're a young teacher or an older teacher, you've been teaching for 50 years, this is solid advice. A lot of times teachers want to cut off in the middle of, you know, a student has practiced all week, we hope. Um, <laughs> but they have practiced the whole week and they, they come in and you're like, oh, so you're working on this. Show me what you've worked on. And three measures in, you're like, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. That, that student has, has spent their whole week practicing but they're nervous they're in a lesson but let them finish the piece it is your job as a teacher to take notes and remember where you want to go back to work on just because you maybe you don't have a great memory so you want to stop right in that moment to address it you need to take notes let them finish the piece and then say you know what i heard some really great things always start with the positive give them positive notes i loved how you did that legato phrasing at measure 37 that was beautiful and i heard improvement start there because if you go right into them it hurts it's painful and give them that positive and then say you know what but i i heard a place here where the phrasing was a little off and i think we can spend a little time on there and focus on that little section and try to make something better. It's not your job to make every detail better in one lesson, but it is your job to encourage the student and make them feel good about what they've done. I love that. And you know, I was at a clinic the other day, I, I played percussion too, so this was a percussion clinic, but the kid said to me, um, I asked, well, why aren't you playing both notes? I think there's a C and a G or something together. He was just playing this interval with the two mallets for some duration in the piece. And I said, why are you only playing the one note? He was like, oh, my teacher told me that I should just play the one because it's easier. I said, well, can you play the one now? He's like, yeah. I'm like, well, are you ready to add the second one? Like, why don't you try it? Like, it, it's okay to hit the F for a while or the A or the whatever other note. But you're in grade seven. I mean, this is your job is to learn these things so that you can, can get them right at the concert, you know? I think for me, as an instructor, I've learned that sometimes if a student's not getting something, that it can be my fault and that I should take responsibility for it. Because earlier in my career, I used to teach staccato a certain way on the piano. Um, I always would tell the students that it's like touching a hot stove and you wanna get off of it right away. And I noticed that all my students were playing staccato like, wow, and like popping their hand like a foot off the piano and that's not what we wanna do. And I kept noticing that all my students are playing staccato like, ah, ah, ah. And I finally analyzed staccato, like what is staccato? Okay, staccato has nothing to do with the attack of the note, period. It has nothing to do with the start of the note. It has to do with the release of the note. So I'm telling them it's like touching a hot stove and, but that's not really what it is. It's what I want is space between the notes. I want daylight between the notes. I want the release to happen quickly where we can have silence in between the notes. And that's what makes a note staccato. What makes a note legato is no space between the notes. And I started drawing it out that way. I would draw quarter notes out and I would say, this is legato. And I would just draw a line to the uh, next quarter note and say, there's no space in between these notes. And staccato, I would just put a huge space and I would just say, it's almost like there's a rest there. And now all my students play staccato beautifully, but 
instead of telling my students that you're wrong, you're wrong, this is not how you play staccato, I had to reevaluate the way I was teaching it. And it's just because we're professional musicians and we're teachers doesn't mean our way is the right way. And I think as an educator, you also always have to be challenging the way you're explaining something um, to make sure that it, it's clear and that what you want the student to do is how you're explaining it. Yeah, and it's so interesting, too, because I, I think that so many people are dismissive of ideas that they didn't personally study or that they don't necessarily at first agree with. Sometimes, again, dismissing what the student might need. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was at a master class one time with a famous clarinetist. I won't say who, but he was trying to explain to the student that the in and out breath should be the same thing. And I'm like, well, they're just not, though. Like, and this kid's clearly not getting what you're saying. He's not advanced enough for whatever you're saying. It's not working. Like, why don't you have anything else in your repertoire to try? He stopped this kid like a hundred times, like, the breath has to be the same. It, like, it's the same thing breathing in and out. It's like, what? <laughs> you know, it just wasn't working for this kid. And then he was not, and he felt embarrassed because it was a masterclass setting and it was just not a great thing to, you know, watch. But um, I had one more question for you. And we're kind of totally pivot. Sure, pivot. That's <laughs> I, I noticed on your website, this is a great website, very simple. Uh, more people should study your website, I think, for <laughs> being a musician. Um, did you do this yourself? Yeah. Is this like a Squarespace or what did you do this on? Is Squarespace your sponsor today? No, no, but actually I do. Oh, you, I'm I do, joking. I'm jo <laughs> that's a good idea, though. I do use Squarespace. Um, I should have them. So, in. no, um, my, my website is WordPress. It's super easy. Um, um, I used to have a really like detailed website, and I've learned that the website should just be a landing page for people to contact me. Um, like, hi, this is who I am. If you want more information, contact me. And yeah. it works. I get, I get a lot it's of like a business card nowadays. Yeah. I get a lot of feedback from my website. I get a lot of um, contacts through my website. Cause I think it's just clear and easy to navigate. I love how simple it is. I was wondering um, you're using a bit of, we won't go into your exact rates and stuff here in the podcast, but you're using a bit of what I would call price psychology. Um, price anchoring, things like this. Have you thought about this or just is kind of by accident? Um, explain what you mean. And I'll tell you if it's intentional. One of the things, cause I've taught sessions for musicians before on like how to use price psychology and marketing and stuff like that in their music. And, uh, it's just really smart how your, your fee for the lesson is one thing, but if you book a group of them, it's a little less. And if you book a little longer in that group, it's a little less again per hour. So this is something that I used to do very successfully is I would charge one price. Like if you want a one-off lesson, sure, you can come, but it's a lot more. And if they ask why, it's like, well, because the, ad the admin times a lot more, you know, we have to do the same number of emails to set up one lesson as to set up four lessons or, or a year of lessons really, or whatever, you know? And uh, I just think the way you did it was really smart. And I wondered if this was like a, uh, if you'd, had some sort of background with this or <laughs> well yeah um i think it comes from lots of experience um in my 20s i owned a school of music um, with over 400 students and 10 instructors a week and i owned that school of music for six years it was really successful um but it was not something i wanted to manage anymore um it was managing me and um i love teaching but i don't like the admin side of it and i don't i don't like collecting money um, or anything. And this is something we really need to be speaking on right now. Um, so in America, the federal government is really cracking down on how you're receiving money and how you get taxed for that money. So if you receive money, Venmo, Zelle, everything of those things, we're going to get to the point where you're going to get, if you're, if you're accepting that money for um, work-related things, you're going to get taxed for it and you're going to get in a lot of trouble if you're not keeping everything really clear and transparent. So Number one, I only accept payments through QuickBooks. So I, I don't accept payments any other way. I send invoices to my students and they pay back. But I guess the retention is the word is, you know, I want to work with someone and I want them to succeed. And if I just do one lesson with someone, great. I can give you as much as I can in that one hour. But like you said, it is a lot more work. But I love the retention. I love working with someone and seeing their growth. Earlier in my career, I would do like, you know, payment on the first of the month and try to juggle four lessons in there and like, oh, excused absences, unexcused absences and all that. I've just gotten to the point where my policy is simple. You pay for four lessons up front. 
I have a 24 hour cancellation policy. If you cancel within 24 hours, you lose that lesson. If you give me 24 hour notice or more, I'll work with you. I'll either skip the lesson and we'll go to the next week or I'll give you a makeup lesson. And what I've learned is my retention is a lot better and my students stay with me longer. Um, my students are really happy, but the billing happens at different times. So on their fourth lesson, you know, lesson four of four, I send an invoice to the parents and say, all right, time to pay for the next set of four lessons. And that's, it works really well. It's, it's genius because it's actually um, what you said is, is so smart, too, as far as like you like to separate the, the, the music from the business. And this is a big problem for a lot of musicians. They don't like that connecting. And to be fair, why would you like it connecting? I mean, I hated always talking to teacher or sorry, students, moms or dads or whatever at the end of the lesson being like, oh, well, you know, last week, you know, we missed one and can we get a makeup for that and this and that and blah, blah, blah. And like constantly talking about and when you're dealing with the cash right there, too, you know, they, they have control over that money that they maybe owe you or don't or whatever. It's, it's just not a good situation. So, I mean, that's what I advise people to do as well as like separate the music and the money. I mean, when I was teaching, I'm not really anymore, but um, just don't have time. I used to actually got to the point where it was like a punch card system. You would pay for either four I think it was four, 12 or 30 lessons at, at a time. And there would be different pricing based on the number you paid for. And also, you know, I offered same thing, credit card and stuff. And, and people have told me before, you know, oh, why are you offering credit card? There's a fee. It's like, well, if you're not charging enough, of course the fee bothers you, but you have to set your rates to accommodate the fee like Starbucks does, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, QuickBooks has fees um, and I pay the fees for everything. And, um, all my QuickBook money goes into a checking account, and I do not take 100% of my money as profit. 10% of my money goes into a tax envelope to pay taxes, um, and then another 10% goes into my business envelope, which is business expenses. And then I pay myself a salary every two weeks from that account that's much less than I'm actually making to make up for those rainy days where a student has to miss or or I need to take a week off after Easter to recharge myself. And there's, I don't lose any money because I'm getting just a salary for my teaching. That's so smart. You're much more disciplined than me. <laughs> yeah, well, but I also teach 20 hours a week. So I'm getting a, a lot of money from teaching. So um, I realize that if you're out there and you're struggling, you've got four students. I mean, you've got to take all the money because you need that money. But if you ever get in a place where you're running a studio and you're making more money than you really need, it's really beneficial to not take it all at one time, to really put money aside for a rainy day. You never know when you're going to need it. Well, and, and you have to watch your pricing structure that works for you too, I guess, because the one you know problem in quotes I had the one year was that when I switched to this, uh, you know, four lessons, 12 lessons, 30 lessons thing, I think I did full price, 2% off and 5% off. I was astonished that I think 80% of my students wanted to pay the whole year up front, which was 30 lessons at that time for me. So I had this like incredible <laughs> September and then almost no income for the rest of the year, which was I had to space it out basically and, uh, you know, accept other work and things, but it was a very odd, but yet very nice situation because like I said, with the punch cards, I know X person paid for 30 lessons. If they didn't show up for one in late notice, I just filled it in. But because, and this is a psychology thing, because the money and the lesson are separate, um, the person's mind is no longer as attached to the event. So they're more likely to understand your cancellation policy and not come chasing you by, chasing you down for that lesson they missed because it's just a cross off on a, on a form. It's no longer 60, 80 or hundred dollars or whatever. Right. And a lot of businesses do this. Like you, you miss a month at the gym or whatever. Well, that it's a subscription per month. It doesn't matter how many times you went. Exactly. That's a good way to say it. And I think for me, with me teaching in Evanston, I'm in a different place than most people. Um, you saw my prices. My prices are um, on the upper end of pricing, and but it's where I am. And I feel that parents don't even bat an eye here. They just pay for their lessons. But I have lived in places where my, you know, my tuition was much cheaper and, you know, it was a struggle getting paid. Like, you know, chasing money is not something I like to do. And here I don't have to, but it's a different place. I mean, being in Chicago, if someone's living in Evanston with children, they can afford lessons with me. And I, I'm just aware of that. That's a very good point too. You're very, you're very smart about all these things. And <laughs> yeah, it really depends on where you live because you know, you, the best thing to do is no matter where you live is look at other teachers prices, you know, 
some teachers publish their prices like me, but start exploring like what are other teachers charging? And you can probably find what the median price point is in your area. In Chicago, I'm probably under the median. Um, you know, I know one professor at a nearby university wanted to charge me $250 an hour for clarinet lessons, um, which is not wrong, but that's a lot of money um, to take, you know, lessons. Well, and I think that you hit the nail on the head too about kind of judging your environment and also kind of finding your niche. I mean, I know a teacher who has a piano kind of studio and they realized that their environment was in a more low-income kind of region. So they had this idea to do group lessons where it's kind of like, um, I don't know if you've ever been to like physiotherapy where they kind of give you something to do and it's, they've got multiple people in the room and the one kind of doctor goes around to several while they're there and helps them with their things. Anyway, um, so basically there was a portion of like group lesson at the beginning, but then everyone would sit in their kind of isolated spaces and have some practice time and the teacher would go around between those rooms and they could offer the lessons for half the price but have four kids at once. So in a way, they're actually making double what they would have made, but the parent pays half and still gets some value. To the, to, so it was an interesting kind of concept. And I know other people who deal with more high income situations. And uh, there's a guy I know actually who charges tuition for the year and it's, there's no number of lessons that's guaranteed. That's what it costs to study with him for the year. And uh, I mean, of course, there's weeks he's off or you're off or whatever. But he also will do two lessons or, or you know, sitting in on whatever you need him for. That's what it costs for his time for that year to, to be around him. <laughs> and he, you know, has that times, let's say, 10, 20 students. And there is no waffling about lesson rates and lesson days and, and all this stuff. It's like you signed on to my studio, you know. Your day is Wednesdays at whatever time, but I mean, if you're not here, it's not like I owe you something. You've paid, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I, I think you're nailing it. Is you're paying for my time, and you know I'm an expert at this, and I'm good at what I do, but I want to give my time and attention to the student because at the end of the day, that's what I love doing. So I don't want to do, I don't want to spend time being an admin to my studio. So you know, finding a payment situation and having a studio policy that you give the first lesson to the parents that's clear, that has your cancellation policy clearly written, and maybe even having them sign that they agree to it, because the first time they need to cancel, I know what it says on the contract, but can you make an exception? No, I'm sorry. This is my policy. Like, stick to your policy. They will respect it, because if it was the other way around, they would want to be respected as well. If you move over one time for that cancellation policy, you have ruined that relationship with that student's parent, and they're going to ask you to do that every single time. Um, you have to be firm. Give an inch, they take a mile kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And um, and I think the way I charge is just per lesson, you know, four lessons at a time. It, it's, it really works for me. And um, I have money coming in every day of the month, basically, but I'm constantly sending invoices, but it works really well for me and no one complains about it. I had lots of complaints when I was doing, you know, monthly tuition. Yeah, it's so hard to work out too. I, I used to spend so much admin time just sitting there, like figuring out who had been here, who hadn't been there. Oh, I forgot to make a note about this person was 15 minutes late and I said I'd make it up the next day or whatever. It's just so much nonsense. And once you stop doing that, it's, it's really nice. But it has to work for you. That's that's a really important thing too. It's like, if it works for you, if you're happy doing all that admin work, fine. <laughs> but if you're not, there's other ways to do it. And, and you can even glean inspiration from other, other businesses that are service-based. Like, how does a massage therapy studio work? What do they do? Go in, grab their pamphlet you know, copy it <laughs> if you want, like what they're kind of, what they're kind of doing as far as the hourly rates, um, or maybe not the exact rates, but what I mean is like the discounted levels or monthly, monthly versus individual or all these different things. Um, I really do appreciate you coming on the podcast here. Uh, we've talked about a lot of different things. I think this episode will be really, really valuable for, for those looking to, uh, you know, have a, a different type of career in music than, than the ones we are, you know, most accustomed with. Um, I know that I love this about the podcast, that we get to explore all these different careers. And I, I do hope that if you're a younger clarinetist, you'll consider all your options too. Um, you know, look at your entire skill set and try and find something that, that will work for you. So if you're listening to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else like that, the show will end here. But for those supporting the podcast production at clarinet.com slash join, there's around 65 people in there now. Now, Thank you so much for supporting the show. Um, you will get access to an extended ad-free version with some additional 
questions from Wesley. I'm going to be asking him about uh, his all-time favorite books and music, some of his hobbies, um, something about him that I would never guess, and a few more great questions in there behind the scenes. So if you're ready, we're going to head on to the lightning round. And if not, I'll see you in the next episode of the podcast. Thank you so much, Wesley, for joining me today. No, thank you. series clarinet features a completely redesigned bore inspired by the Bakun Custom Series clarinets. This means you can play and perform like the pros, but for less. Use code CLARINET at BakunMusical.com to save 10% on your entire purchase and try the Bakun Q-Series or Protégé clarinet risk-free for 30 days. Just pay the return shipping if you aren't fully satisfied. Shop now at BakunMusical.com and use code CLARINET at checkout. As musicians, we're always looking to improve our playing and understanding of music, but we are often hesitant to work on the business and marketing side. If you're looking to make more money teaching, fill up the gaps in your schedule and find ideal clients to work with who leave you energized instead of drained after a day of teaching, you need to check out clarinetist Kelly Reardon's Outside the Box community. Get a free 30-minute consultation and personalized recommendations from Kelly by mentioning Clarinet when you register at kellyreardon.com. That's K-E-L-L-Y-R-I-O-R-D-A-N.com. Also, you might want to check out her recent podcast episode with me, number 174 of the Clarinet podcast. For more great offers, head to clarinet.com and click on the Offers tab in the menu. If you'd like to get in touch with me and have any feedback, guest suggestions, or just want to say hi, I love to hear from listeners all over the world. Please do send me a message at hello at clarinet.com, and I will be sure to write you back as soon as I can. Happy holidays to all. I'm going to try and get a Christmas episode out next week with uh, maybe Santa Claus or maybe have his wife on, which I think I've been meaning to do for a while. Um, but it's been pretty cold up in Canada here, and it's a lot colder at the North Pole. So we'll have to see if I can I can make that happen this week. But uh, thank you again so much for listening. I really do appreciate you, the listener. And I look forward to seeing you next time on the Clarinet Podcast, the show for clarinetists.